Well, good morning. Uh, happy Boxing Day. Um, I was actually looking up Boxing Day yesterday because I randomly decided to Google it because I have no idea why it's called Boxing Day. And funnily enough, actually, it has a Christian origin. Uh, see, at the back of our church there, we, because of COVID, we put these little boxes for giving instead of going around and passing out plates. That's actually where the origin of Boxing Day comes from, is that throughout church history, there was kind of a campaign throughout Christmas of we need to give and so we can bless people, and so it was put it in the box at the back, basically, and then um, eventually that box would be emptied on Boxing Day, and then they would go out and bless a bunch of people. Now, if you think about what it is, it's the exact opposite. It's, um, I just spent a bunch of money on Christmas gifts, and I'm going to go spend some more. It's kind of weird. Anyway, speaking about weird, uh, we're going to go to my weird message today. Uh, those that know me know I'm a little bit cheeky, a little bit strange. I like making jokes. Uh, so my message today is called The Original Conspiracy Theory. And I figured if there was a time to unleash such a strange message, it would be the Sunday in between Christmas and New Year's, because traditionally that's the least attended Sunday of the year. <laughs> Oddly enough, we have a really great crowd this morning, uh, so it wasn't exactly moving in the prophetic when I was making this message. But anyways, um, I figured uh, I'm kind of just riffing off the fact that we have... Uh, well, Conspiracy theory, or even just the label of conspiracy theory, is being thrown around all the time now. Um, and I guess right now there's really like this big battle of truth. And no, we're not going to get into the muck and the mire and <laughs> talk about what's going on and all the different theories around COVID, etc. Um, what I'm actually talking about, just generally, with cons- what a conspiracy theory is, is having mistrust or doubt towards authority and towards. The, the narrative, the teaching of the authority. And yes, I'm using this in a spiritual sense. And this, kinda, this message kind of came to me, I guess, a couple of Fridays ago. We were having like a young adult hangout here at the church. And we were doing what everybody else does around, you know, just sitting around talking about COVID. Like, what else are you going to talk about, right? Not like we have our normal lives. But anyway, so we're talking about COVID. And of course, you know, conspiracy theories start coming up. And just, you know, having a great conversation. And while we're doing that, I just felt God randomly just chime in. And he said, did you know that the original problem with humanity is a belief in a conspiracy theory? And then the story of Genesis just came flooding back to me. It's kind of a weird thing when God talks to you. It's like he plugs like a USB stick into your head. And there's a massive download in just a single second. And it was like this message just came to me of like, and I never realized that before, like I've read that story I don't know how many times. But yeah, the original problem with humanity is a belief in a conspiracy theory, particularly one against God. So we're going to be going into that today, looking at Genesis 2 and 3. And this is actually something that didn't just happen once, we do it all the time. We doubt God, we have unbelief towards Him. Um, We don't think He's as good and as faithful as He really is, and that's what we're looking at today. So just, uh, just for some quick context here, God's creating the whole universe in Genesis. He creates Adam and Eve, the first man and, and woman. Uh, and he has them in absolute paradise, the Garden of Eden. And they get to hang out there, have a great time with God. And he gives them one simple rule, one simple rule. Here it is in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord placed a man in the Garden of Eden and, uh, to tend and watch over it. But the Lord warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden. 
except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you, will, you are sure to die. So one simple rule, you're in absolute paradise, don't eat the fruit from that one tree. And what that one tree is, is the knowledge of good and evil. So what's going on here is that God is supposed to be the one who decides what's, what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. And we are not meant to, to take that burden upon ourselves. We are not meant to go and say we are going to decide what's right and wrong. We're going to put ourselves on that same uh, level to God. He's supposed to be the one that we go to to figure out what's right and wrong, what's evil and, and good. But anyways, they didn't do that. Um, and you'll see coming up here that they messed this up. And we talk about this is when sin entered the world. This is the fall of humanity here. Um, and let me just define sin with a, I think kind of my favorite definition of sin. This comes from St. Ignatius of Loyola. Loyola. Anyways, um, here it is. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. See, when we're not convinced that God really actually has our best interest at heart, that he really does care for us, that he really does love us, we're going to go grab the controls of life ourselves, and we're going to go try to satisfy our souls our own way. And when we do that, we're rebelling against God. We're going down roads we're not supposed to go down, and that's what sin is. So with all of that in mind, let's read from Genesis 3. So we're reading all the way from 1 all the way to 7 here. Famous origin story of the world in the original conspiracy theory. So the serpent was the shrewdest of all wild animals the Lord had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It is only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not supposed to eat. God said you, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to, to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and that you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and the fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So that there is the original conspiracy, that they doubted the goodness and the faithfulness of God. They weren't believing that God really had their best interest at heart with, you know, with the commands that he had in place, with the culture that he had set. And that's something we are continually tempted to believe in pretty well every day. We're continually tempted to believe in that original conspiracy theory that God is not as good as he says he is, or he's not, he's not really faithful, or he doesn't really love you. He's not really looking out for you. He doesn't really know best. And the thing is, we often promote that conspiracy theory without actually even realizing it. We do it quite a lot. And kind of the, the telltale thing that always happens for us to go into this mode is when adversity shows up. And obviously, we've been facing a lot of adversity here for the last you know, year and a half or whatever it is. Or even if it's just inconvenience, we can just go into the mode of start to spout off some doom and gloom and start to speak of how terrible things are or, and, and kind of really just go against that goodness and the faithfulness of God. You, know, you might not even realize that with the words that you're speaking that you are doubting the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And too often we can sound like we're people of fear rather than people of faith. Or we can sound like we're people of unbelief rather than people of belief. 
Too often we don't really do a good job in saying that our God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he loves us unconditionally. In fact, we can spout a bunch of nonsense that does, essentially would make God a liar, and we don't quite realize that that's the garbage that's coming out of our mouth, or it's just rattling around in our brain. So I want to look at this text, and I want to show you how Satan spins out this conspiracy theory, and look at how Adam and Eve fell for it we can glean some lessons um, from this story. So what was wild to me when God kind of just spoke this to me and said, you know, that, you know, the original problem with humanity is belief in a conspiracy theory. And as I started to kind of read through this, this passage afresh, I was like, oh my goodness, like this has all the elements of, of a good conspiracy theory on it. Like this is a master class of manipulation. But, you know, the devil is good at his job when I was watching this and it just... This neat thing about the Bible is it just becomes new and again and again and again. It really is the living word. So you'll see first thing that the devil will do, and this, this is what he does to Adam and Eve here, is he appeals to their own intelligence. He'll purposely, he purposely messes up God's command here. And you know, he, says, he says in the first verse, you know, did God really say you're not supposed to eat any tree here? You're not, you're not supposed to eat any fruit from any tree here. Now, obviously, that's like a preposterous statement because it's like, what were they supposed to eat then? If, you know, the devil's like, yeah, you, you guys aren't allowed to eat anything here, right? And it's like, that was completely bogus. He, and so, you know, Eve's like fairly, fairly incredulous. I was like, no, like, what kind of a rule is that? No, we're just, we're just not supposed to eat one tree. That, that three of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only one we're not supposed to t- eat, and we're not even supposed to touch it. And again, worth noting, some people miss this, is that Adam is there the whole time. Eve just happened to be the one doing the talking at this moment. Um, but anyway, so first thing that Satan does is he puffed up their intelligence. So here's like a supernatural being, an angelic being, a fallen angel that's there in the garden uh, with them, and he immediately makes them think, oh, we know better than this guy does. So they, you know, they get a little puffed up, a little, little puffed up. And then he manipulates that. Step number two is then he gets them to take their own intelligence and use it to question God. To question his authority, his narrative, his regulations. He says, no, 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 you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So everything he says there is actually technically true, just not presented with the correct perspective. See, when Adam and Eve did eat that forbidden fruit, they did die, but not immediately. That's probably what they had in their head. If I touch this, I'm gone, just like that. But actually, they, began to, they died hundreds of years later. It began like this degenerative process when we rebelled against God. We left this perfect environment where we, where we would live forever and instead entered a fallen world where we would slowly degenerate and, and die. So this, this, this second part of, of this statement when he's saying, you know, your eyes are going to be open to good and evil. He's not lying there. He's, but again, just lacking the correct perspective. So the devil, the devil is capitalizing on, on their ignorance, their version of what they think God means. Um, again, their own intelligence, their own way of spinning things, understanding things, he's capitalizing on that. And, and they probably think, you know, if I eat this fruit, I'm going to be just like God. I'm going to be all-powerful and all-knowing. Um, yes, I'm going to have his power. And just a quote from Spider-Man, which is one of my favorite life sayings right here. It says, with great power comes great responsibility. And this is a funny meme. It says, and headaches. Because that's exactly what happened here. God knew that they could not handle the burden of that power of knowing 
the knowledge of good and evil. They couldn't handle that burden of constantly trying to figure out what is right and what is wrong. God did not want us to bear that weight. He was really thinking of us and thinking of our best interest because he loves us. He did not want us to bear that burden. He knew that if we did it, if we were bearing that burden, we'd be crushed under the weight of it and we would go down the wrong path and hurt ourselves and others. God is always looking out for our best interest, but they didn't believe him. They thought he was holding back. And you'll see in the story that the second that they eat of this forbidden fruit, they are immediately overwhelmed. The second they ate it, and they, they just stopped trusting, when they stopped trusting that God knows best, and, that, and essentially they believe that they knew more than he did, that they knew more about right and wrong than he did, immediately overwhelmed. Now you fast forward to today and look at all throughout human history how we have struggled under the weight of that same burden. Just think of the time and energy, even just over COVID, that you've wasted trying to figure out what is right and wrong. Your mind has just spun a million, I know mine has just spun a million miles a minute trying to decipher what's right, what's right. What's the conspiracy theory, what's the truth. We've had a really, really hard time, and we, we do throughout all of our life just to figure out what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. We have a hard time, hard time with it. And even if you just look at society today, it literally is tearing us apart in every sense of the world. That's, that's kind of the original problem with the world, why we can't all get along and live in perfect harmony, is everyone is struggling to figure out what is right, what is wrong, and everyone has all these radically different opinions about it. But here's the thing, as Christians, we now have this privilege that we can give that back to God. We can take that burden off our shoulders and make him the Lord of our life and say, I don't have to be the one that decides what's right and wrong and good and evil, and I don't have to fight that battle anymore. I can put Jesus in charge and follow his lead, and that burden can be removed from me. And then I can live a perfect life again. I can, I can walk in the correct path. See, we, we, even though as a Christian, God can remove that burden from you, you know, it's still very easy to put it right back on your shoulders again and still battle with it. But again, it is possible to shift our eyes above the mess, shift our eyes above the storm, and look to the one that holds the answers rather than worry about what the answers are. It's very possible to lay down that burden whenever it keeps rearing its ugly head. Often we don't, though. And then we start to wrestle with it, and then we start to believe that original conspiracy and then begin to doubt the goodness and the faithfulness and the mercy of God. See, we should be people that are okay not knowing all the answers because we know the one that holds the answers. We should be content to follow his lead. It should be freeing that we know that we're not the ones in control. He is, and that's all right. We should be okay not knowing what tomorrow holds because we know the one that holds tomorrow. And as I think of the current state of the world, there's so many doom and gloom prognosticators out there. And it, it baffles me continually that Christians are often among the worst of them, peddling fear and paranoia like it's free ice cream sundaes. And it baffles me because this is nowhere close to what we're called to be as Christians. Quite the opposite, really. See, Adam and Eve allowed themselves you know, to become arrogant in their own intelligence. And then they became paranoid and you know, they feared, you know, God really isn't as good as we've been taught. Not really as faithful. Maybe he doesn't really have our best interest at heart. And then this, this arrogance or this paranoia, this becomes cannon fodder for the devil. It gives him a foothold. It gives him ammo to manipulate. And then we are also very similarly manipulated. When we allow doubt and unbelief and fear to come within our heart, 
and we just begin to doubt the goodness and the faithfulness of God. That just gives the devil a foothold to begin to manipulate you. So how do we avoid this? How do we avoid falling for that original conspiracy theory? The primary problem with the world, doubting the goodness and the graciousness and the faithfulness and the love of God. So here's a big one first. Humility. It's good to be reminded that there is a God and we are not him. See, particularly problematic is we as humans like to put God in a box, our own little understanding, our own preferences, our own comfort, our own little version of right and wrong. And that's an extreme pride. I see that continually. Uh, I think it's particularly egregious when we, we look at things that God has deemed sin and we say, no, it's fine. We do a lot of that. But that same type of pride is what Adam and Eve had. That's kind of, it's the same ugly disease we still struggle with today, this arrogance of putting God in a box and, and saying what he can and cannot do or the way he is going to do things. Or, and, and we speak with a, uh, a, and a power we obviously don't have. The thing is we can't contain God. We can't put him in a box. We can't do that to God. See, we can't even comprehend the love that he has for you, let alone his plans, his purposes, his ways, his goodness, his faithfulness, his mercy. We can't even fathom how holy he is. We can't fathom his, his wisdom. It's far above our pay grade. So don't box up God on Boxing Day. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We aren't on the same level and we shouldn't be pretending that we are. See, when we allow this, allow this stinking pride to come into our souls, it takes your eyes off of him and onto you. And we could hang out here all day and talk about pride and how destructive it is and how it will destroy your life. But that'd be a whole other, well, that'd be like a message series. It's a huge, huge topic in the Bible. We're just going to read a couple of verses here. Proverbs 11, 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. So if you want to be wise, you need to be humble. First and foremost, you need to respect God's position as God. We're not him. Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the respect of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That has to be the first thing that you consider when you're looking at a situation, especially adversity. First thing you're going to look at is who is God? This is my situation, but who is God? And let's look through it through that lens. It's also very good to be reminded that we do not ever have the full picture of what's going on. And we shouldn't act like we do. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then, referring to heaven, we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. See, too often we fly into a panic. We get into that doom and gloom mode because we're staring at a single thread when God's looking at the big, beautiful tapestry. We need to let God be God and let Jesus be Lord. If you say he's Lord, you better make him Lord. He's either Lord of, Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And when you do this, it actually brings an amazing peace to your life, knowing that you're not in charge, 
It actually feels good to be out of control. Knowing you don't actually have to understand everything, you can just lay it all at the feet of Jesus and let him handle it. It is so, so freeing when you decide that you're not going to bear that burden of trying to figure out what's, what's right and wrong. You just lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, he's God and I'm not. He's all-powerful. He'll figure it out. This is what humility can do for you. It's such a beautiful thing to just lay it at the feet of Jesus. Whatever adversity that, or even inconvenience that you're facing, when you lay it at the feet of Jesus, it is so freeing. It is so freeing. So another trait that we need to be, you know, to stay away from that original conspiracy theory, it's hope. As Christians, we need to be people of hope. That should be one of our primary trademark qualities, people of hope. We should walk around and continually inject hope into this world, making it a better place. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. It should be so prevalent in our life that people are asking about it. How do you have that hope? Why are you so different? And we should always be ready and prepared to give an answer. This is why. Let me tell you about who my God is. First, you notice in the first part of that verse here, in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. That's where your hope comes from when you know that God is God. Jesus Christ is, is Lord. And that gives you a supernatural hope. Knowing his character and his goodness and his faithfulness and his, and his ability to make all things work together for the good of those that love him. We always need to be people of hope because Christ is our Lord. Hebrews 6.19 says we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. If you don't want to be manipulated by the devil, if you don't want to give him a foothold of whether it's arrogance or whether it's fear, whatever it is, if you don't want to be manipulated, you want your, your soul to be firm and secure whenever storms are coming your way, whenever it's adversity or inconvenience, you need to have your hope. That hope will keep your soul anchored in the midst of a crazy circumstance. So we have to remind ourselves when we are facing crazy stuff that we have a hope in him, a hope in an all-powerful God, a hope in an all-knowing God, a hope in a good God that loves us unconditionally. But when you lose your hope, you lose your anchor, and next thing you know, you're drifting in the sea. The same sea everybody else is in, that's going back and forth, here, there, everywhere, and in that, that panic mode. And again, taking that burden of that, that good and evil with us. So you see, Adam and Eve, they left their hope behind. Very quickly, I might add. And they should have known, you know, that God is good. He's an amazing father. He's literally built a paradise for them. He's the epitome of love and of justice. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. And he would not hold back from them. He would not keep good things from them. He wouldn't give them this raw deal where he was holding things back from them. But they lost their hope, and so they believed that original conspiracy theory. For us today, we should be able to withstand a lot of this temptation and the conspiracies that the devil will try to bring into our hearts and minds because we're rooted in hope. That regardless of whatever the devil can throw at us, we can say, but I know my God is greater, he is bigger, he is stronger, and he's good, and he loves me. Adam and Eve let go of all of that, and we often do too. Romans 12 says, Romans 12.12 12 says, Rejoice in our confident hope. 
be patient in trouble, keep on praying. See, our hope is supposed to be confident, not easily shaken. Again, it should be something that exudes out of us, this confident hope. Too often, it's, it's way too easy, way too easy for us to start to doubt God, to doubt his goodness and his faithfulness and just to let go of that hope. But if you ever find yourself without hope, and you will because we're human, um, this is going to happen, this is humanity 101, we let go of this kind of stuff. But when you do and you recognize it, hey, you know, I'm lacking my hope right now. Where's my confidence? Where is my anchor? You can get it back. Psalm 42.5 says, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. That's something David had to do continually. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Something's wrong here and I need to change it. I'm lacking hope and I need to begin to put my hope back in him and go through that exercise of, no, 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 why am I fearing? Why am I panicking? Um, you know, why am I filled with unbelief? My God is good. He is faithful. He is wonderful. He loves me. We need to go through that and begin to put hope back in its place, the anchor of our soul. Romans 15, uh, 4 through 5 says, Such things were written in Scripture long ago to teach us, and the Scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as it is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, hope can be found in Scripture because there's literally thousands of years recorded in there of God coming through again and again and again in situations far greater than we'll ever face. So there's a tool right then and there. If we go through that, Scriptures long ago will teach us hope. They will fill us with encouragement and help us wait patiently for the situation to be resolved, for God's promises to show up again. Secondly, when you have hope, when you have that patient endurance, that confident hope, it allows you to live in complete harmony. Again, that's something that the world can't do. As you can see all over the place, what a mess it is out there. But as Christians, we should be able to live in complete harmony. Why? Because we have a confident hope. We have hope in our, in our soul. It is anchoring us, and we know who God is, and we are lifting up one voice towards him and pointing you know, the attention towards him and giving him the praise and the honor and the glory. We are putting our trust in him. That should be this an amazing testimony to the world that because they're used to extreme diversity of thought and they're used to, used to you know, some, so much turmoil. But as Christians, we should be people of harmony because we are people of hope. And that should be something so radically different than the world. They should be able to look at us and say, I want that. I'm tired of battling. I'm tired of carrying this, this, this burden. And then they could come here and experience that same hope, that same peace, that same love. And they could be utterly transformed inside out. The church should be a place of humility and hope. And that would be such a phenomenal testimony to the world. This blessed assurance that we have that things are going to work out. That God's going to make a way when there seems to be no way. In conclusion, I want to read from a very famous passage of scripture. Um, what I memorized as a kid, and again, what's wild to me is you read it so many times, but then God just begins to put layer and layer upon it, and it becomes new again. And I think this really reminds us as Christians to be people of humility and hope. 
And it gives this very beautiful description of what it means to be a Christian. So we're just going to go through it line by line and squeeze out the nectar, squeeze out the goodness. With that. So it's Psalm 23. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Meaning, God's in charge. He's the one leading, and I can trust in Him. So much so that I'm not going to lack anything that I need. Secondly, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Meaning that he helps me calm down. When I'm, you know, raging inside, having a storm, when there's a storm going around, when I go to God, he'll lead me to places that I can relax and calm down and, and have my peace. When my soul is, you know, at unrest, when it is that pain, when there's hurt in it, when there's panic within it, he can restore my soul. He can help me put that anchor back in, that anchor of hope. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's the one that tells me what's right and what's wrong. I go to him, not my own opinion. My eyes aren't on me, they're on him. He'll tell me what's right and what's wrong. He'll lead me in the right path for his name's sake. You know, we walk around as Christians. God has a vested interest. We carry his name for us to walk in these paths of righteousness. And it's who, it's who he is, it's who his character is, that he is, he's a good God, and so he will lead us in the right path. His reputation's on the line, and he's going to keep it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That's the key there, for he's with me. Whatever situation I might face, I don't have to fear. I don't need to go into that doom and gloom, that woe is me, that panic, or even that, uh, this attempt to intellectually understand everything. No, I can just believe that God's with me, and I know that he's with me. Regardless of the circumstance, he's with me. He will never leave me or forsake me, and I'm going to hold on to that when I'm in the worst of the worst situations. It says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This means like God will correct you when you go off God, and that brings comfort. That as, no, as long as I'm connected to him and I'm following his leadership, I'm not going to step off the path. He's going to continually prod me back into where, where I'm supposed to be, and that gives me great comfort, knowing that with him you can actually live the life you're supposed to live. It's what God can do for you. Here's my favorite one here. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What's wild about this is that even when you're surrounded by the enemy, even when the situation is at its most dire, that's when God says, let's get intimate. Let's get to know one another. Let's sit down and you know, have, a, have a meal together. That's, that's who God is. It's like right in the middle of your worst situation, he says, do you really want to know me? Do you really want to get to know me? Do you want to draw closer? Let's do it right here, right now. And we miss out on that continually. Often we just begin to panic when things look real bad. Going to that doom and gloom mode. But we're missing out on a moment of intimacy with God. Multiple moments, I should say. Right in the middle of your mess, God wants to get to know you, and he wants you to get to know him. So, so much so that it would be a foundational thing for the rest of your life that you can remember forever. It says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. It means that God blesses you so much, you have, you'll have more than you need. He'll give you this anointing even these gifts to handle situations, these gifts to bless others. He'll give you the gift of his presence, even so much so that it's just running right out of your life. And again, that is what we're supposed to be as Christians. We have that hope of God that flows within us, so much so that it flows out into the world. 
We should have that peace of God so much within us that it flows right out into the world. Why does God always fill your cup to overflowing? Because he wants you to share. Wants you to go out to the world and say, look what I have, and God wants you to have it too. He wants you to know his goodness so much so that it will just flow out of you and, and be a testimony to the world. He wants you to know his mercy so much so that it will just flow right out of you in, in, into the world. God will bless you and fill you to overflowing when you're in the midst of these crazy bad situations. The last line here is, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. God is a pursuer. We don't actually need to you know, chase him down to get some of that goodness. He's chasing after you. His goodness is chasing after you. That's what my last message was about. His mercy is chasing after you. It's going to follow you continually, chasing you down. Every day of your life, there is God's goodness waiting for you to experience it. Every day of your life, there is God's faithfulness waiting for you to experience Every day of your life, there is the mercy of God waiting for you to experience it. The peace of God is there every day of your life just waiting for you to experience it. It will always be there in pursuit of you. God is an ever-present help in time of need. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is our ultimate hope, is that we are only here for a short time. We are actually supernatural beings having a natural experience. You know, the grand scheme of things will, will probably like barely re barely remember all the pain, the hurt, the trauma, the panic that we're, we have to go through here, here in this life. Because we're going to live in absolute paradise with God for forever. That is our ultimate hope. And that's something that should bring us an encouragement, even in the worst and the worst situations. If that's kind of like both the worst case and the best case scenario at the same time, is that we end up in heaven, end up in purpose, perfect paradise with him for forever. We know a God that loves us so much that you know, 2,000 years ago on Christmas, he began the greatest salvation plan of all time, the greatest rescue plan of all time, so that we could live with him forever. That's who God is. That should give us a confident hope. So this morning, I pray that you've been given like a, an extra awareness of when you've been believing the, that original conspiracy theory, when the devil is trying to peddle some of his nonsense towards you that God is not as good or as great or as faithful or as merciful or as powerful as he really is. And maybe it hasn't been a very overt thing that you've realized, but you begin to notice that the way that you've been talking maybe recently isn't, someone, isn't of someone that's filled with humility or filled with hope. Very, very easy for us to be manipulated. Again, Satan's been doing it a very long time since the origin of humanity. But I pray God's going to just give you a, this, that new awareness of, okay, something's off here. The devil's manipulating me here. And to ask yourself, where's my humility and where is my hope? Am I putting my trust in him? Is, am I really actually putting God in the place of God? Or am I trying to hold a burden I'm not supposed to? Or am I lacking my hope right now? Has my hope been stolen from me because I need to get it back? So I'm just going to end in prayer here, and then we're going to dismiss, and then we're just going to continue, I guess, celebrating Jesus this Christmas season. Dear Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you that you've been speaking to us for thousands of years. And God, that you made sure that we would have all of these amazing uh, stories and, and teachings uh, you know, thousands of years later. God, because you would teach us that the same problems we have today are the same problems that we've been facing since the beginning. 
And God, I pray throughout, you know, all this craziness that's going around us, and not just even this season, but in seasons to come. Because we know it, adversity will always happen here at this earth. We are guaranteed, guaranteed to face troubles here. But we're told to take heart because you've overcome the world. So God, I just pray you're going to give us, uh, just continue to wipe our lenses clean and, and help us understand these situations that we're facing. I, I pray, God, you'd help us look within our own hearts and even to ask ourselves, where's my humility at? Am I putting God in his place? Am I trusting in him? Am I letting God be God? Am I talking about an all-powerful God? Am I talking about a God that can make all things work for his good and his glory? Or am I spouting some doom and gloom nonsense? God, I just pray you just minister to all of our hearts. We really genuinely want to be a testimony to this community, to this region. We want to be that city on a hill. We want to have something that they don't. And God, here we are in the middle of an extreme chaos and so much inconvenience that's going on. God, we want to be people of humility and we want to be people of hope. We want to be people that your goodness and your mercy will just flow right out of into the world. We'd be such a phenomenal testimony that you can come here and actually live in harmony. God, as the world is becoming increasingly divisive, we want to be people that live in harmony because we have that hope as an anchor to our soul. We have you as the Lord of our lives. And so we have that as a unifying front, something that binds us all together, to know that you are God and we are not. And we can take such great comfort in the fact that you are on the case and that someone that is far more qualified than us is the one that's deciding what is right and wrong. It's the one that's figuring out what the solution is to our problems. And so God, yeah, I just pray that here at Bethel, God, that we're just going to be that city on a hill filled with hope and humility. And I just pray we're going to be in, like, incredibly attractive to our, our Lakeland region, that you can, you can come here and your soul can be restored. God, I pray that you just give us that ministry of soul restoration. As the world is tearing apart souls right now and causing all sorts of problems within, God, give us that ministry of soul healing, soul restoration. That's what we want to see here in this church, God. God, we just want to see people break free of the burdens that the devil is trying to put on us. We are not meant to be people of fear. We are not meant uh, you know, to take all of these burdens on us, God. You have, you have made us so that you are the one that holds our tomorrow. You are the one that holds our hurt and our pain. We lay our burdens down to you, God, and you will carry them for us. God, I just, yeah, just, just pray, God, you're going to... Even in this moment here in this church, God, I just pray that you will just begin to just remove burdens that have been placed on people's hearts. They've realized that they have doubted the goodness and the faithfulness of God. There'd be a change. What a Christmas gift that would be, God, to be set free this Christmas from all of the filth that the devil has been trying to inject into our souls. And once more, that hope would reign supreme. Our belief in this amazing, incredible, loving God would just reign supreme within our hearts. It would be this amazing anchor in the middle of this crazy storm we're going through. God, we just pray that you would encounter us this morning. And God, even the kids that are down the other end, I pray today that they would give, give that amazing gift of blessed assurance that Jesus is theirs that they have a God that loves them incredibly and is going to meet their every need. God, so, much of them are, so many of them are growing up in a very strange world right now that is filled with fear. 
And God, we don't even understand the effects that's going to have on people's hearts down the road. But God, I just pray you're going to break every chain. You're going to break every assignment of the enemy, especially over the kids of our church, God. And that you're going to set free their souls and they're going to be the people of faith that you've called them to be. God, that this pandemic is actually going to be a story of their life of God's faithfulness and his goodness and his triumph and his power and his greatness and his love for them. It's going to be a foundational moment of their life, God, where they're going to be able to look back for the rest of their life to say, my God is good, and I'm going to put my trust and my hope in him. God, I pray you'd be with us as as we go. You'd continue to bless and anoint all of our Christmas gatherings and our celebrations. And God, I pray you'd help us live in harmony and peace, and your spirit would just flow right out of us even to all of our unsaved uh, family members and, uh, and neighbors, whoever we might even come in contact with. In your name we pray, amen.